and welcome to episode 45 of Tea or Books. I'm Rachel. I'm Simon. And today we're going to be talking about do books that have won or been nominated for literary prizes um, make us want to read them, yes or no? <laughs> um, <laughs> so succinct. And, yeah, well, I thought that was quite succinct. <laughs> and then um, we're going to be talking about tea books by Vita Sackville West, The Air and All Passion Spent and Deciding Which is Our Favourite, which I can imagine is going to be a difficult call, actually. I think it might be. And I should say from, from the outset, in case we were confused, the, the air is H-E-I-R rather than A. Hi, uh. Yes, our wonderful upper-class pronunciation of, of <laughs> sounds exactly the same. Um, Simon, how are you? What's going on? You got big. Well, no, we you, we had big news last time, did we? That's right. Yeah. So we talked about my new flat last time. Although what people didn't realise is I was actually recording in someone else's house because I was looking after their cat for a fortnight. <laughs> but, Typical. But, as per. But now I am actually back in my flat. My books are. Almost all unpacked and shelved. You've just seen them on, on mm-hmm. Facebook. Beautiful. Uh, thank you very much. I did find one box um, that I thought I I thought I'd done all the books, and I found one box of books I hadn't done. But it's quite a small box. I'm hoping they'll fit in. <laughs> <laughs> um, I yeah, it's lovely having them all with me. Um, so my only big news now is what I was telling you just now of my Shania Twain tickets. <laughs> 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 Equally important, I imagine. <laughs> Yes. And, you know, I will be really interested to see how Shania Twain has aged. Well, yes. So she's, I believe, 52. I say I believe. I know is that she's she really? 52. Um, and I'm sure she's still as beautiful as ever. I'm sure she is. She's probably looked after herself pretty well. She seems like that kind of woman. Yeah, probably. <laughs> I wonder if there are any Shania Twain podcasts out there. Hmm. If, if there isn't, there's a gap in the market. <laughs> Man, I feel like a podcast. It could be called. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, before we alienate all of our readers, our readers, <laughs> our listeners, rather, um, what, what are you reading at the moment? Well, um, I'm actually doing the thing that I said I never do, and I'm reading more than one book at a time, but that's because um, my university course starts next week, and I'm doing last-minute panic reading. Um, so I've just finished, well, almost finished, um, Where Poppies Blow, which is a lovely non-fiction book about nature and world war one hmm. um which is written by somebody with a long name which i can't remember actually if i look on my blog i'll be able to tell you uh john lewis stemple who is a nature writer normally but also a specialist in world war one yeah. so how convenient perfect storm, yeah. exactly and it's actually really fascinating insight into how um like in the, in the early 20th century how versed in the natural world people were um and how the the animals flowers etc feature so heavily in letters from the front poetry from the front and it was a way of of soldiers kind of communing with nature and there's this wonderful passage in there like oh this is a quite uh, would make a great book about um gardens that all of the soldiers created on the front and also i didn't realize there was a big British prisoner of war camp in Germany, but it wasn't soldiers. It was people who happened to be working in Germany 
1914 and were like rounded up and had to stay there for the duration of the war. And they created their own garden and their own vegetable patch and they fed themselves and everything. Um, and they had their own Royal Horticultural Society show and they wrote to the Royal Horticultural Society and they sent them all the prizes and they oh did it every goodness. year. <laughs> it's wow. adorable. Um, so just some really interesting stories actually and about how um, people found hope and joy and pleasure in, in life at the front through natural stuff. So I really enjoyed that, especially as I'm about to start teaching World War One poetry to my year nines at school. So it kind of given me a different perspective to talk about War Three. So I'm reading that, and then I don't, and I've also just read as well, which I found wonderful, and I can't believe I've not read it before. The semi-attached couple. Have you read that? Oh no, I bought it ages ago um, because I can't remember who it was, but someone told me it was brilliant. So I got yeah, the Virago one that had that. Is it? There's a sequel called The Semi-Attached House. Yes. There? So yeah, yeah, I got the Virago edition with the two in, but still on my to be read shelf. But is it brilliant? It's so funny. I was started. It's by Emily Eden, who was the great aunt of or aunt of um, Anthony Eden, the Prime Minister. Mm. And it's the two books. I've got the two books together in the edition I've got as well. But from what I haven't started the second one, but I don't think that, I think you can read them separately. Okay. They're not like a continuation of each other or anything. Um, and it's just it's kind of it was likened to Jane Austen on the cover of the one I've got. I've got like a 1940s edition, and um, it is kind of like it's a witty. And really clever and just really good fun. I just loved reading it. I couldn't wait to kind of open it up again and get back to the characters. She's so good at, at creating really nasty, two-faced people. And it's just really, really enjoyable. If you want something where you'll just sit back and giggle for a few hours, I'd really recommend it. It's a quick read as well, so. Oh, maybe a future podcast episode. Mm. Mm. Really enjoyed that. How about you? What are you reading? Um, I am reading um, Half of a Yellow Sun by Chimamanda and Gozianichi years after everyone else is reading it. So, I mean, yeah. everyone, everyone was reading it in 2008, weren't they? But, um, yes. Well, I didn't, so... <laughs> yeah, not everyone did. Um, <laughs> and I read... It's the last of her novels I've got to read, actually. So I read Americana um, a couple of years ago for my book group and loved it. And so after that, I read Purple Hibiscus and I read her book of short stories called That Thing Around Your Neck, I think. Um, and I finally come to the sort of most famous one, um, and it's all about uh, the coup in Nigeria, basically. Um, so you see, you, fought, you see it from the perspective of various different people who who are either Nigerian people or people who've moved. There's one character who's moved there from England or America from somewhere else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm about a third of the way through, I guess, and the, and the the violence is just starting. So it was quite a sort of uh, character study and just, you know, people living their ordinary lives. So the first section was obviously now being disrupted by by all the, the, the coup and the violence and the and the killings and things. So I got a feeling it might not be a cheery read, so I might need the Emily Eden <laughs> to, to make me cheerful afterwards. <laughs> yes, I think you probably should. Yeah. Although so interestingly so far I th- I think I like it less than her other books. Um but it might just be because it covers quite similar ground to Purple Hibiscus, um right. which is also about this sort of same period of time. Um, so yeah, maybe I just, if I'd read it first, I might have liked it best. I don't know. But talking about reading more than book, one book at once, I had a nice comment on the last episode from a lady, I think called Anna or Anya, um, how saying that, um, she's a retired English teacher and she was saying that all her life she's been a monogamous reader, but my arguments and, um, from the last episode have persuaded her to perhaps give polygamous reading a, um, a go. Wow. She's joining my side. Yeah. <laughs> I've asked her to report that. back, so we'll see. 
Yes, we'll see. <laughs> Um, well, you've already fallen, it sounds, so... You know. Well, I know, but only out of necessity. <laughs> uh, it's a slippery slope. I know. <laughs> I'm worried. Okay, let's get... Should we get started? Why not? Yes. Um, I've got lots of things to say about this. Oh, right. Makes, well, that's impressive, makes... considering you didn't know what we were talking about five minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> Fast well, work. Okay. I've always <laughs> an opinion on everything, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay, well, start, start me with some opinions. Well, I I find um, book prizes, particularly the the big ones like the Booker and um, now I can't think of any prizes, uh, Pulitzer Prize, etc. I find recently that they are becoming a bit like the Oscars in that it's all very political, okay. and also knowing that um, publishers sort of pay to get their books on the prize list has made me increasingly cynical. Do they? Yes, they do, Simon. What? I, my eyes are being opened. Yeah. Well, you know, not necessarily in handing over a load of money, but in terms of who can afford the most publicity, who can oh, afford the I most marketing. Do you yes. see what I mean? And and also, publishers are only allowed to, to nominate a certain number of books. Mm. So they're kind of, obviously, they're going to put their money behind the one that they think is, is most likely to you know, sell or whatever. So it's not really a reflection of merit, I don't think. And I find that the it's kind of directly proportional to readership as if you're on a shortlist for a prize, no one will read your book and, you know, vice versa, because I feel like the books that are chosen aren't chosen for readability, but are chosen for impressiveness or, you know, fancy writing or, you know, interesting um, contemporary debates about, you know, looking at our society through different prisms, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they're not necessarily about the enjoyment of reading. Well, there's a big kerfuffle, I don't know, five, six years ago when Stella Remington was the chair of judges for the booker and they talked, she talked about readability and how they, well, basically they wanted their books to be, um, yeah, re- readable was the word they kept using, I think. Um, and there's a bit of an outcry from those who thought it should be primarily about literary merit rather than accessibility or you know a beach read or whatever mm. um and in fact i think it was in response to that that the folio literature prize started although i must confess that um there, there was quite a lot of press about it starting i have no idea who won it or even if it happened but i assume it did um i think um my issue with things like the booker is that similar to what you're saying i guess is that it it does seem to bring about the sort of book like a the best fairly wordy state of the nation type novel rather than um necessarily the the best book but i mean obviously that's incredibly subjective but i um well in fact let's do a little little experiment so they've announced the book a shortlist recently Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um potentially by the time i edit this it will be one who knows but let's uh, (laughs) say we're at the shortlist um i deliberately didn't go back and look it up again although i did read it at some point because i wanted to see how many i could remember and it's one but before i do that how can you name me please any books on the book of shortlist yes i think oh actually i don't know whether it made it to the shortlist now uh, i felt really confident then <laughs> you did um, you were right i thought you could name all rattle them all off in alphabetical order or something i feel like ali smith autumn is in that in there that was my one book I knew that was on um, there. Yeah. Possibly Zadie Smith's Swing Time, but I don't know if that made it to the shortlist. That didn't. I remember someone telling me that they liked it and it didn't get there. And I only I only remember that because I saw someone reading it on the tube yesterday and I thought, more for you. 
Because <laughs> I don't like Sadie Smith. I think I've talked about that before. I think you have. Mm. Well, I've now looked it up. Ooh, and the shortlist is... 4321 by Paul Oster. History of Wolves by Emily Fridland. Exit West by Mozin Hamid. Elmet by Fiona Mosley. Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders. And Autumn by Ali Smith. How many of those have you heard of? <laughs> I Well, I know about Lincoln and the Bardo. I mean, this is only because I walk past foils and they have stuff in the window. Oh, I sure, mean, yeah. In terms of, like, you know, have I heard people talking about it? Have people recommended it to me? None of those books people have talked to me about. Okay, so Lincoln and the Bardo, they, they were talking about on Backlisted Podcasts, again, they, they really loved it. And then I'm sure I saw someone reading 4321 by Paul Oster, potentially a friend of mine, potentially on Instagram, potentially on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> but I've never heard of Exit West, History of Wolves, or Elmwood. No. So, <laughs> does it influence your reading? <laughs> Is, uh, I mean, not, we're not going to write the end of the conversation just yet, but... No. Um, it sounds like from the, I mean, the one you've heard of, Autumn, are you more likely or less likely to read it, or does it not affect you at all, based on it being well, on that shortlist? To be honest, I mean, it, it probably makes me less likely to read books, because I think, well, I know the reason why they're on the shortlist is because they're probably going to be impenetrable, and, you know, really clever, or not even necessarily clever, but just gimmicky. And mm. I, don't, I don't want to read a gimmicky book. I don't want to read a book that, you know, starts at the end and then, you know, comes back to the beginning in the middle and then does something else. Or like you read what, like what her book before you started, if you would, depending on which copy of the book you bought, you started the story in a different place. I'm like, well, oh, yes. whatever. I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, I just want to read a book that I enjoy and that has wonderful characters and that carries me away to a different place and that teaches me something about the world from a different perspective. And I think, you shouldn't have to do some kind of conjuring trick in order to do that for people. And I think the amount of books that you copies of these Booker Prize winning books you see in charity shops demonstrates <laughs> the fact that people don't actually treasure or enjoy them. And I think I, I read, I think the Guardian had an article a while back about people that had won the Booker Prize, you know, back from when it started. And if you actually look at the people who won the prize, I think there were like two authors that I knew of. Um, and they were famous people like Muriel Spark and people like that. Otherwise, just books that have completely disappeared. And I think if if we're really thinking about literary merit, shouldn't we be thinking about longevity and the impact on wider culture and on people's um, reading experiences? And if you think about, you know, if well, books won a prize and, it, and that's the best apparently literature that's been produced in any given year, surely it should have some kind of resonance down the line in the future for people. No. So, gosh, there's a lot there. Gonna go take it step by step. <laughs> um, I, well, oddly, I come into it slightly from the opposite in terms of experimental books, because I think if it, I, my, I think it's nice if there's a prize for writing that is trying to push the boundaries of what can, prose can do, um, and develop on previous things. And even, you know, self-consciously clever books. I, I think there's a place for those sometimes. My problem with the books I have read recently that have won the book is I just found them quite mediocre. Mm. Um, and the two examples I think of, um, Julian Barnes' The Sense of an Ending um, and Howard Jacobson' The Finkler Question both won. And, well, The Sense of an Ending, I thought, or A Sense of an Ending, I thought, this is fine. Like, I finished it and thought, yeah, it was, it's pretty good, but I don't I understand. That. Yeah. Fine. <laughs> yeah. I was like, well, that was... That, I was really surprised that anyone could react more strongly in that because it wasn't particularly 
interestingly written. It was certainly very competently written. Um, but that was about what I could say for it. Whereas the Howard Jacobson, I gave up. I just, I found it so boring and supposedly a comic novel, but at which point I can even see where it was trying to be funny, let alone find it funny. So I think if they went all out, like I assume the Folio Prize intended to, um, and pick something that they, they could really stand behind and say, this has got extreme literary merit. It may not be a crowd pleaser, but it's really brilliant piece of literature. Then that's one thing. But if they're just, if they just end up whatever they are trying to do, if they just end up with books, they're a bit in there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, talking about like f- forgettable things, I think the short list of the Booker of the Years has got some really brilliant books on it. Um, and lots of authors that we love are on there. But the, the winners perhaps are mostly remembered for winning the Booker rather than for anything else. Um, well, yeah. Because, yeah. Uh, trying to think, and we've someone like Elizabeth Taylor was on the shortlist once, but um, but yeah. I don't know who won that year. And Muriel Spark, I think, won with was it the Hot House by the East River that won? She I'm won not sure. the Mandelbaum I... Gate, perhaps. But and I think Penelope Fitzgerald might have won. Um, trying to think, well, Penelope Lively won with Moon Tiger, but Penelope Fitzgerald maybe won with maybe Offshore. Did that win? I don't know. I can't remember. But it's, I think it's an interesting. Overall, list, but particularly when compared to something like the Orange Prize that is now called the Bailey Prize, or potentially now called something else. But um, <laughs> I, I once—it was about five years ago—I looked at a list of everyone who'd been shortlisted for that, and I'd heard of almost none of them. And that's that's the prize that's just for women writers, which you know, there's, there's a debate about whether or not that's a good thing. I happen to think it is probably a good thing, but um, but it just. Yeah, it turned out clearly quite a forgettable shortlist over the years. Yeah, and I think that's that's part of the problem, is that they do tend to be quite forgettable books, because as much as I see what you're saying and we should be praising experimentation with fiction, I don't think that necessarily, you know, it's kind of a bit like when you go to an art gallery and you look at, um, like for me, when I go to the Tate or something, I get drawn to the famous paintings and you look at sort of a constable or you look at a Turner and there's something in there that's trans transcendental, I think that takes you out of yourself. Mm. And then you go and look at a sculpture that's done, you know, yesterday that's, I don't know, some of the ridiculous stuff that I've seen, you know, like oil being poured on the floor while you stand looking at it. I mean, great. Sure. Whatever. (laughs) I'm sure for somebody that's, that's really meaningful, but it's not something it's something interesting it's something that you might talk about for a bit but it's not something that's going to have a lasting impression it's not something that you're going to go back to and look at again and again and again and find a different meaning in it every time and i think that's kind of the analogy i would use with with this sort of fiction it's something that's interesting to read it's interesting to talk about but at the end of the day is it going to have a permanent place on your bookshelf are you going to reread it are you going to buy copies for friends are you going to wax lyrical about it to everybody are you going to read it again and again year after year I would argue no. But I guess I, I guess that sort of novel is already doing quite well. Or that might be what the Costa Book Prize or something, which is tends to be more just like these are novels that people really love. And, but don't uh, you think, no, Simon, no. I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but no. I feel like passionate about this. No, please. I think, you know, surely what we should be rewarding is the type of experience that I'm talking about. Why is it always that being flashy and experimental is considered more worthy of praise than being something that people love. Firstly, I love the sirens in the background at the moment, as though the book of police are coming to <laughs> <laughs> like, drag you away. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
I think I guess what I'm saying is there are different prizes for different things, perhaps. And I think I don't tend to read much modern fiction anyway, so obviously any prize is going to be about modern fiction. But if I wanted something that was um, a, a good read or that was probably going to touch me in some way, I think the Costa Prize does do a good job of that. And things like The Tenderness of Wolves by Steph Penny, well, that I can't think of any other example. But that, <laughs> but that sort of book um, that is certainly well written and and probably quite moving and lots of things. I think that's got a place for it. But I think that I think there does deserve to be a prize, which I don't think any of them currently are doing, for a different sort of book that is going to be like the landmark of yeah experimentation, I guess. Um, in the same way that you know the Turner Prize would do that. Whereas if you can just if you just want to walk around the National and look at the beautiful paintings done over over history that are like you know transcendental in that way that you described they're also there. Yeah. I mean, I can see an argument for that. And I think, like I say, <coughs> it's good to praise experimentation. But I think also at the same time, it's perfectly possible to do both in one book. So, for example, um, I like Hilary Mantle. She's won the Booker Prize twice for two books that were incredible, brilliantly written, very interesting, different, like experimenting with narrative voice and historical fiction as a genre. Everybody loves them. And that's the kind of book I'm talking about. You can be clever and also readable. And that's what I think should be being praised. Because I don't think that we should be giving prizes to books that nobody reads. <laughs> hmm, I mean, but... like, for example, I did, in, back in 2013, I can't believe it was this long ago, I did a Booker Prize um, reading group at school when I was working in my previous school with my sixth formers. Oh, okay. And so I actually did read quite a lot of that year's shortlist, including the book that won, which was The Luminaries. And as you may remember, I suffered my way through that 700 page long book, which was very beautifully written, but it had, it just didn't work as a book in terms of readability for me anyway. I'm sure lots of people are, are, would disagree with me, but it, it wasn't sort of a keeper. And I see so many copies of it in charity shops, which uh, exemplify my point entirely. However, John Crace's Harvest, which was one of the books on the shortlist that didn't win, which I thought should win, was beautifully written really powerful a book i would definitely read again and combined that experimentation that style with a brilliant heartfelt moving book and that for me is what we should be putting on a pedestal and, and looking for that kind of quality and the rest of it i mean the girls that i was reading it with they just didn't enjoy any of the books they were like i don't really you know get why this is on a prize list like, well you're preaching to the choir ladies <laughs> well, I, yeah, I mean i definitely agree with you that i don't think it from from what i have read from the list i don't think it's currently doing either um picking the, the, it's not picking either the sort of books we're describing really or or no. anything satisfactory in between it seems um but do you think prizes should recognize in terms of because you're saying about books that people read do you think it should recognize books that people have already liked enjoyed or do you think it should bring books to attention they might not otherwise get because i mean whether or not we are interested in the prizes certainly the the booker at least and, and the costa and others um do bring a lot of readers to books that otherwise might not get readers oh yeah absolutely and i think that 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 the, that's one of the problems i have with these prizes is that they are dominated by the major publishing houses and books that or or and you know the kind of these publishing houses that often will pay out a big um 
advance to to a reader to to a writer and then need to recoup those costs so they're going to push that book they're going to push that book for the prizes etc and other books that perhaps are perhaps better quality but are less down on the pecking order of of the lower down on the pecking order of of what the the publishing house wants to push or are at a publishing house that doesn't have the money to, to do a marketing campaign do all of those things they just get ignored and the reality is i think there should be an element of public interaction with these awards in the sense of there should be a kind of proportional public vote in okay. like in into deciding what goes on the shortlist because i actually got really frustrated i I do the carnegie reading award every year with my kids at school which is the children's equivalent of the booker prize and i was never been so incensed in my life as when my friend went to um a meeting of the judges i couldn't go unfortunately i was at university and someone in the audience said why do you take into account what the children think? Because all of the books that year had been chosen for political reasons in terms of what the ticking diversity box is, mm-hmm. talking about political issues. And the woman said, none of the children in my school have enjoyed these books. And uh, it was the same for me. Only a couple of the books the children in my school actually enjoyed. And same for me. I read all of them. I only really enjoyed a couple. And they said, we don't care what the children think. It's not about the readers. It's about what we decide they should be reading, not what they tell us they like best. Mm, and I said, that's an utterly opposite way of doing things. Surely it should be these sorts of prizes should be informed, at least in proportion, by some, you know, some minor proportion, maybe a 20%, you know, consideration vote or something, of what people are reading and enjoying. I did a Shadow Carnegie at my school back in... Did you? Um, 99, I think it must have been. It was when I first read Harry Potter. Oh. It was around, it was, it was book three was on the list that year, and it was around the time where he wasn't, ma- or he, the books weren't massively popular, but they were growing in popularity. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's what introduced me. But I think I only read two of them in the end. I read that one in Tightrope by someone. Yeah. I do you actually, I do find that the Carnegie of all the prizes that I read does tend to choose good books. And even though I say some of them were political choices, they they do pick books that that represent diverse and interesting voices that I think children wouldn't necessarily pick up otherwise. And I like the fact that children are being challenged to read stories about quite distressing things so that there were books about um, <laughs> refugee camps this year. Oh, okay, yeah. Just kind of like widening their understanding, yeah. especially as most children who are voracious readers tend to be from a certain social class and social background and perhaps don't really know that these things happen. And so it was really interesting, some of the choices that they'd done this year. Like I say, I was a bit annoyed that they'd chosen them not as much about merit, but perhaps on literary merit as on um, sort of the the topic that they discussed. But in terms of do they tend to choose decent books? Yes, they do. But what's interesting about the Carnegie is it's not time bound. The books can be published recently, which can be like anything up to the last sort of three or four years. Okay. So they don't just pluck from books published in that year, which I think is is quite good. And what they do, they, their justification for that is that they say some books take time to make their way into the consciousness. And it's actually judged by librarians. So... Oh, I have another yeah. librarian. Yeah. Um, if we look a bit further back, so I mean, as, since I was read a lot of modern fiction, it's sort of an artificial argument. But are there any prizes um, that have been long running that you look to their sort of backlist? I guess. No, I mean I can't say that prizes influence my reading at all. I'll just wait for the end because I, yeah. I mean I will say that um, I don't know if I've actively looked at things, but um, the the James Tate Black Memorial Prize is a really good one. I think in terms of 
if, if I see that something's one up, then it's slightly more likely to make me buy it. And it's had, I, was, I mean, Lady and the Fox won it. Um, it's had Arnold Bennett, D.H. Lawrence, Radcliffe Hall, Jamie Priestley, Secret of Soon, E.H. Young, Miss Mole won it. Um, Winifred Holtby won it with South Riding. Oh, well, that does sound like, I mean, I, I have heard of the James, um, Tate one, Bobby but Hartley. I. Yeah, so, um, yeah, there's, uh, it's done by a university, I think, and it's still going to this it's day. It's Edinburgh, I think, isn't it? I think you're right, yeah. Oh, the far cry, my Emma Smith. Sorry, I was looking at my phone. <laughs> um, Margaret Kennedy. So basic, oh, Ivy Conta Burnett, Rose McCauley. What a list. Um, <laughs> And that, so it started in the late 1910s, and every year they do a novel um, and a biography. Um, yes. And I think recently they've done drama as well. And that's a list where, I mean, I, as I say, I have, probably haven't proactively looked at it, but it's much better, to my mind, than any other prizes history list, sorry, historical list of winners that I've read, in terms of... Um, the strength of what they picked, and it's not, and it is, I guess, the sort of book you're describing, because it is, these aren't the, you know, it's not, Ulysses didn't win, what, in 1922, for example, what, what beat out Ulysses, let's see, um, oh, Lady and the Fox <laughs> won in the year that Ulysses was published, yeah. so, I mean, I don't know if it was eligible because of the whole not being published in England thing, but anyway, um, it's the sort of thing where it is well-written, well-read books are the ones that have won it over time, and, and the sort of books that you know, follow our taste. And we, we just clicking down to look at the most recent winner was Ava McBride, The Lesser Bohemians, which I've not heard of. I've heard of her. Did she write something about... Is she the one who wrote Grief as a Thing with Feathers? No. Oh. She wrote... Um, I can't think what she wrote, but I know her. She... I can't think what her books were. Oh, Girl is a Half-Horned Thing. Yeah. That with her, yes. Um, yeah, it seems that they they choose books that are, are more in line with perhaps what people are reading. Oh, and just looking at twenty thirteen, guess what? One the year that you um, were looking at the twenty thirteen uh, shortlist. I can't even imagine. <laughs> Jim Grace Harvest. Did it? It did. Well, you are. well then I, I'm going to be following that from, from now on. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that was definitely the best book in my opinion. So there you go. Um, that I felt. I mean, I don't want to accept myself projects because I never end up doing them. But <laughs> but I might try and pick out the books I've got on my shelves that have won it, um, that I've yet to read and have a little look through. Of which I'm sure there'll be many. I mean, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elizabeth Bowen won it in 1969. <gasps> oh, Eva well, Trout. there you are. So, Eva Trott, rather, sorry. No, Eva Trout. Eva Trout. Trout. Yeah. So yes, I um, recommend people to go and look on Wikipedia at all the, all the winners of that. I think it um, is a very strong list. Okay. But I think in general, um, I will agree with you that although I'm slightly less likely to win a book to read a book if it wins the book than if than if it doesn't, that other than that, I don't think I'm particularly influenced by prizes. But with, no. with historical lists, perhaps more open to to exploring them. Yes, agreed on all okay. counts. Yeah. Yes. We await your feedback, dear listener, on mm. what, we're, what we're missing out on, or perhaps you agree with us. Yes. One person who, as far as I know, has not won any of these prizes. <laughs> <laughs> what a segue. Is Peter <laughs> Zach for <Wes. laughs> Yay! So, yes, as Rachel said, we're looking at two novels, um, The Air, or Nevada, I guess, The Air and All Passion Spent. Um, when did you first read uh, Peter Zach for Wes, and what was your, the first one you read? I read the Edwardians when I was at university. 
and I can't remember why, um, but I think I think I'd read about it on your blog or something. Maybe I've only actually actually I've only read it in the last couple of years, but I probably wrote about her. I think yeah, um, I think I just sort of just this was about the time when I discovered you, and through you I discovered Persephone books. Hmm. So or some other way around that, or I discovered Persephone books first, and then discovered you through it, something like that. And then um, because you know we've both, I I was definitely reading you long before I started blogging. Oh, I can't remember. Nice. Anyway, at some point I came across and I read the Edwardians and liked it very much. Um, but then didn't really read anything else because it was actually a, around that time there were, her books were out of print and it was quite difficult to find them. Uh, it's only yeah. recently that they've been republished actually um, in their entirety anyway. And I just thought she was really interesting. Oh, I'll tell you for why I read her because I I was doing Virginia Woolf at university and oh, that's course, how I yes. came across. <laughs> I was reading Orlando and then I was like, oh, I want to know more about Vita Sackville West. So I got the Edwardians. And also um, my... My family live in Seven Oaks, which is where her house is, Noel, Noel House. So I've grow, grown up sort of going to Noel House, and I knew about her from there. And um, and I also, Noel House is supposed to be the house in, in Edwardians, so I found that really interesting to read. But how about you? Yeah, I um, read No Signpost in the Sea first. Which oh, was, interesting. Yeah, her last book, and I think my aunt lent it to me, so I was about 16 probably when I read it, and I didn't very much like it. Um, and that put, so I didn't read her again for a few years and I can't remember which one I picked up next, whether it was, um, All Passion Spent or The Arrow. It was one of those two. Well, All Passion Spent, my friend Claire gave me for Christmas one year. And I think, I can't remember what, yeah, maybe Hesperus just sent me a review copy of The Air, but, um, I completely love both those books and that sort of set me off. But oh, before we go any further, we should summarize them, shouldn't we? Yes, we probably should. Um, is it right if I do All Passion Spent because I just finished rereading it? Yeah, of course. <laughs> Great, I'll start with that one. So it was published in 1931, 1931 um, sort of in the middle of her novel writing career. Uh, it's about Lady Slane, who, unlike many quote-unquote old ladies of, of 1930s fiction, actually is old. She's um, 88 when normally they're old ladies are about 50, but um, she <laughs> she is widowed in the opening pages um, of the novel and and her various uh, children, most of whom are sort of querulous and um, annoying, but there's one, one sort of attentive, nice one who didn't marry called Edith. Um, they are trying to decide where she's going to live and who will have to look after her now, and she announces to them that actually she's going to go and move just with her maid, uh, to Hampstead, to um, a house that she saw 30 years ago. She's going to go and see if it's still available. So <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's not super rich, but she's definitely got enough to live on. Yeah. Um, her husband is, was a prime minister and was um, also an ambassador or something around the world. Um, so she's got enough to go and do this. The children can't believe what's happening, but she goes off and does it. The second half, or the second third, actually, of the novel looks back at her, the early days of her marriage, and then the, the final section of the novel just basically looks at how she's getting on in Hampstead. Um, and we'll talk more about it, but yes, it's sort of a a, a wonderful um, what if this old person tries to start her life afresh, um, having always been slightly or considerably trammelled by her marriage and her children, not able mm. to be the painter that she wanted to be. Um, how, how can she actually get it? A, a new lease of life in the final years of it. 
Yes, very nicely summarised, Simon. Thank you very much. Um, talk to us about the air. <clears throat> so the air is very short. It's a novella, and it's the story of a man called Mr. Chase. He's a solicitor. He's in his forties, and he's living very depressing, um, kind of rented rooms in in Wolverhampton, which. Um, for those of us who are British, we'll have all sorts of associations. <laughs> it's basically the middle of nowhere where nothing happens. Um, uh, but industrial nowhere, though. Yeah. So, yes, not yeah. like a beautiful village or anything like No. That. Apologies <laughs> to anyone listening who's from Wolverhampton. I'm just basing this on on um, stereotype rather than lived experience. I'm sure no, it's a lovely place. I have been there and it's horrible. Okay. So. <laughs> Be horrible to Simon. I didn't say that. Um, so he unexpectedly, um, at the beginning of the novel, his aunt dies and, and he inherits her large estate. Um, and her estate that is centred around this Elizabethan house called Black Boys. And it's in the Kent countryside. Um, it's loosely based, it's based on Greenbridge Place. If anyone's interested, you can visit it in Kent. You can't visit the house because it's still privately owned, but you can see the gardens. It's near Tunbridge Wells. Anyway, mm, um, which was another house owned by the Sackville West family. I mean, they just had so many houses. And um, <laughs> he kind of gets to the, he can't sort of believe his luck, and he gets to the house and goes to have a look at it, and it's just this most beautiful um original place and the, her descriptions of the the chintz curtains and the and the light and, and the mellow light across the the paneling and the stained glass etc and he's just enchanted by this house he falls in love with it but there um unfortunately the house is mortgaged and there's no money to run the estate and there are um the executors of his aunt's estate they keep telling him well you know you're going to have to sell up there's no way you're going to make this place work don't get attached to it. We're going to have a sale. We're going to get rid of the whole place. And and he sort of, Mr. Chase sort of accepts that, you know, yeah, okay, this was too good to be true. There's no way I'm, someone like me is going to be able to live in a place like this. And the whole novel is sort of, novella is sort of building up to the sale of the house. Um, and then, but gradually he sort of, the house has started to kind of allow him to blossom and, and he's this sort of very mild mannered person who's never really done anything for himself and no one really believes in him and but the house believes in him and, and gradually uh, it kind of you know gives him the strength to start thinking, you know what, maybe I could maybe I could live here, maybe I could make this work and, and you're sort of waiting right until the end to know what happens and it's just such a charming and uplifting story, really. Yeah, thank you very much. Um I um I think it's very uh, relevant that the subtitle to it is a love story. Yes. Um, and it is, there's no, um, you know, human partner in it. It is right. a love story entirely between Miss Chase and this house. And I think she writes it so beguilingly that is, he's just, he, he finds the whole thing a bit of a nuisance at first. He didn't know this relative. He's no. not bothered. He's not, certainly not grieving for her. No. Um, he's just come down from Wolfhound because he wants to get it all sorted out and go on his way. And and she really convincingly, just step by step, shows her, um, him falling in love, not only, I guess, with the house, but also with the way of life in the countryside and with the community. Yeah. And um, and it doesn't feel twee or anything. It feels very powerful, I think, because Beatles of the West had that same love of houses. Mm. Um, mm. And indeed was, um, as as you know, upset all her life that she wasn't able to inherit Noel because yeah. of um, laws of primogeniture and it couldn't go to a woman. Um, so I think a lot of that lost love, I guess, um, is what is put into this really beautiful story. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's, it's something that also speaks to about the idea of Englishness and inheritance of, 
as you say, a way of life and being connected to the countryside, being connected to the land in particular, which was another theme of her life that she was very passionate about being, you know, such a, a famous gardener. Um, and the idea that, that where you live can change you. Mm. I found that really interesting. The fact that, you know, in the end, he starts to live up to the house. Yeah, yeah. And the house influences him. It's like the house has a life of its own, a mind of its own. And, and knowing her passion for homes and for how emotionally invested she was in her childhood home. And, you know, Greenbridge Place also being another home that she wasn't allowed access to. And those feelings of, of longing and love really come through the text. And I think that it's so nice like mr chase is is the kind of person he's very bit much that stereotype of someone who works in an office he's got no life he wears gray clothes he mm -hmm. looks a bit gray you know he lives in a gray town and <laughs> he goes to the countryside and you know he becomes it's a bit secret garden in a sense he gets color back in his cheeks and starts um to, to live life again but there is something in that of of how powerful it can be to to change not necessarily yourself but to change where you are and, and how you interact with the world yeah, and I hadn't thought until you said that, but it actually reminds me of um, Green Gates by yes, R.C. Sheriff that we did. That. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of similarities to that. I mean, I think Green Gates is much more, um, as, uh, it's less elegiac, certainly, but. Yes, and he's moving to a, you know, how, very practical housing estate yeah. rather than, you know, this well, colossal sure, mansion. Yeah, a <laughs> house. But there's <laughs> that sense, again, of, you know, of, of a fresh of houses giving you a fresh start and of, of giving you the inspiration to, to live a different life and they're not just a pile of bricks they contain possibility absolutely um and i think to go the house is much less grand than all passion spent but it has that i mean it's still more grand than anywhere i'll ever live <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's in Hampstead, so it, well, yeah. it, it costs millions and millions of pounds now but um the way describes that is that's very run down when you come back to see it. It's mm. um it's not it's only been lived in by one tenant in the last thirty years and they weren't there for that long. And it's is it what's his name? Mr Bucktrout or something? He's I can't amusing, remember. He's got an amusing name. Yes it is Buck Mr Bucktrout, um who is the owner and the agent who was there when she looked at it thirty years ago and is still there now and he decided he's turned down many people living there but he thinks that she'll be right for it. Mm. In the same way whilst he's trying to work out whether or not it'll be right for her. So when she sees it, it's all falling down and it's sort of a lost grandeur, I guess. Yeah. And, she, and it's not even got this sort of loving it back to life thing. She doesn't seem to do that much to it other than make it habitable. But, but it's about, well, it's about a room of one's own, I guess, <laughs> to, to bring it back to yeah, the new world. absolutely. And I think both of the books are quite similar in that sense of, of people being at a particular stage in their life where they've kind of been written off. Mm, and... Mm in both ways, moving to these new houses that are places that they would never normally be ex expected to be found. Sort of Hampstead was very much a village and out of the way at that time. Mm -hmm. um, it's very much part of, you know, really not central London, but it's only it's in zone two, so it's quite central. Um, that idea of, of going somewhere and, and being able to transform yourself in a place where people don't know you and you can do something different. And... I mean, for me, what I found most interesting, certainly about All Passion Spent as well, was the perception that everybody had of Lady Slane and, and the reality and how people had looked at her for so many years and thought that she had had this perfect life. And the reality was yeah, she'd been miserable yeah. all along. And I've read, we've, we've both read so many novels from around this period of women who are underappreciated and their true character isn't realised, and they're often spinsters. Yeah. So um, it's interesting to read 
a novel from the other side where she's coming to the end or she's just come to the end of this very long marriage which has had the same effect of you know society ignoring spinsters it's in this case it's ignored the married woman she's just there to support his career and to provide you know i mean she's not doing the cooking and cleaning or whatever but she's making sure it happens um and she's very much just yeah an addendum to him and the idea that she might want to be a painter in her own right is he he, he quite affectionately laughs that away as oh yes you can paint little postcards of yeah. our trips or something and he's not an ogre he's not he she loves him he loves her in some ways there are there are definitely happy elements to that marriage many happy elements to that marriage but it's about who she was allowed to be in it yeah and um, I think it's, you know, it's, it is quite interesting as well, the fact that she's been considered to be this glittering society lady. You know, she has, people have thought that she's had a very full life in that yeah, role of yeah, life. Yeah. Um, even her maid thinks that she's had this wonderful life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I will say one thing about it is that um, it, it expected me to be able to understand more French than I do based on the maid's conversation. <laughs> I, was, I could work out the gist in most cases, but that was about it. <laughs> Yeah, I find that really frustrating, actually, in a lot of novels. I mean, I'm fine with the French, but it's when they put German in, and I'm like, okay, I've, mm-hmm. I have no idea now. Or in this period, Latin or Greek. So yeah, yes. and I love that kind of implied knowledge base that we've just totally lost now. Yeah, oh dear. Sad, isn't it? So I think, I, I don't know if it's a downside, or if I would done it, wish it had been done slightly differently in All Passions Vent, is that middle section where it does talk about how her life has been you know, thwarted in some ways, which is all very moving. And I thought it was, you know, an excellent delineation of character, but it was very much tell rather than show. Like, I don't mm-hmm. know, it might have been nice perhaps if we'd had more flashback scenes or memories or something rather than just long passages about how it had been, un, you know, unfulfilling for her. Because um, the moments where it was, where it did, like, for example, with the painting, where she, we had a, had a little memory of the scene of, how she talked to her husband about wanting to be a painter, sort of dancing around the subject and it, and it ending up, you know, her realizing that that wouldn't happen. That was really powerful. Mm. Um, so when you get to a section where it just sort of talks at length about feeling unfulfilled rather than showing you examples, then I felt that was a, you know, it could, could have perhaps been a bit more nuanced. Yeah, I think, um, it's quite sort of, chunky in that sense like you get very delineated parts that don't really feed into each other as much and I I agree I think it would have been nice to have perhaps those kind of glimpses of nights where she was out and how she was feeling in those moments and things like that to feel a bit more kind of a progression of how she's feeling and that sense of frustration and entrapment which you don't really get until you sort of get to the end and I, I remember feeling quite surprised that I was like oh you know she's what a great lady she's had a great life and then it sort of slowly starts to say oh actually no it wasn't and I think that could have been more artfully in integrated earlier on um whereas I think the air for me is kind of perfectly written I think perhaps mm-hmm. because it's so short yeah it's yeah. just like this little nugget of beautifulness and it is so well paced and it is, mm-hmm. and it is all about sort of just seeing, you're sort of seeing his reactions as he's experiencing them. Yeah. So I guess because he is changing in that, in, as the novel or novella goes on, I guess we're witnessing it. Whereas Lady Slane's not, she's not really changing in character or in no. what she's drawn to. She's just being made free, I guess. Um, and yes, the, um, the title I find quite interesting. So it's a reference, it's the last three words of Sam's Agonistes by Milton. Um, which is an interesting comparison for, um, 
to vote for this. Well, he's something like this, isn't he? Like tortured on a pillar or something. Is this Milton? Yeah, I mean, I've yeah. I've have managed to avoid Milton for the entirety of my literature life. Okay, so you're going to have to tell. Oh, no, I don't know. Uh, well, I did read it, Samson Agonistes, and I now can't remember very much about it. But I think it's about um, some idea of struggle, some sort of okay? martyr, or yeah, yeah. Um, and and yes, so it is. The illusion of the title is extremely heightened and dramatic um, compared to what she actually has been through. But I think it works. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's not been had no. arrows shot into her, which I seem to remember being a big thing in some setting as these. But going back eight, loads of episodes ago to our, we talked about quotations in titles. What I think is really good about this one is that it, you don't need to know it's a quotation for it to work. I think no. it works either way. Oh, no, I think it's a nice, I think it's a, it's a very sort of, a thoughtful title and it you kind of read it and you think all passion spent and that idea of I love the word spent in that context mm-hmm. when you feel like everything of you is is gone and it's kind of ironic in a way when you think about the novel because all of her that's what people assume as is the case with her but the reality is her life of passion is just starting um yeah, yeah. she's being given freedom at last to indulge in all the things she's passionate about and I just remember feeling really sad when I read the book, because I thought this is someone who is so passionate and so um, vital, and all of that has just been hidden for her whole life. It's been coursing beneath the surface, but she hasn't been allowed to express herself at all. And it so easily could mean something else. You know, all of her passion has been spent, it's been wasted. But the reality is, it hasn't. And now she's got, I mean, I know she doesn't actually get very long in Hampstead, which is a shame. Um, mm. But, you know, she can finally, it's like this outpouring of something that's been pent up for so long. And it's like coming out in this great rush. Yeah, and it's it's coming out in this, as you say, in this rush of, of feeling. But she's still amazingly um, placid in that. Saying, like, what, she, what she wants is is just to be left alone, essentially. Yeah. And she makes this this friend, this this um, sort of reclusive collector of beautiful art. Um, and it is this, he, he's friends with one of her sons, and this is very curious relationship where neither of them really tell each other anything about themselves. And, um, <laughs> and he, he only discovers quite late in the novel and late in their friendship that... Um, his friend had been friends with his mother back in the back in the day, um, but yeah, it is. I, I guess I don't want to give the impression to anyone who's not read it that she goes off on this sort of antique, you know, exciting life. She's yeah. more just. I just want my last years to be me being me, not in reference to my husband or my children, just you know, being myself for a bit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, goodness knows what the maid who's the same age as her get when, when her freedom comes, but you know, she seems quite happy. So. Yeah. But I mean, it is interesting in that sense because, yeah, it's, I mean, there's not like some huge, you know, sea change or anything, and she doesn't sort of achieve anything amazing. But I, th- I suppose what she's achieved is, is finally having what she wants. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm trying to think, how does the air end? I can't remember. Let's open it. Up. Well, I can't say because they're going to ruin it. Oh, is it a big deal how the air ends? Yeah, because it's, you know, because then people will know what happens. Oh, okay. Let's leave that one then. But, um, in the sense of, I think what's, what's different about the air is, is that, you know, the guy in, in the air is much, much younger. And yes. there is that sense of promise that so much now can, can happen in, in his life that, that he wasn't doing before. And I think what's quite different about the air as well is that Mr. Chase doesn't believe anything of himself. 
and he doesn't believe he's capable of anything. Whereas I think Lady Slane has always has, has always regretted, oh, I could have done yeah, so much, yeah. I could have been this person. And so you have this sort of opposite a sense of this house finally enabling him to come into something that was always there, but he just didn't know. Whereas Lady Slane's house enables something that she's always known was there to come out. Yes, that's very well put. Mm. Um, have you read much else, Bayer? Um, no, I've I mean, I've I've got like most of her books, but I just haven't read them. I do want to read. I've got no, a copy of Nolan the Sackfills that I managed oh, to, yes. to get very cheaply online, which I was very pleased about. Um, like an original first edition. Oh, lovely! And it's very nice. Um, it's currently at my mum's house. Actually, I need to sort of go and get my books at some point. Um, but yeah, I would like to read that. I think I've read quite a lot of non-fiction of hers, like essays and things, but not necessarily novels. Okay, because yes, you, whenever I look through the lists on Wikipedia, which I do every now and then, there's always uh, always books I've forgotten exist. And she, um, what I've read, I've read, I've read the Edwardians, which I thought was brilliant. Um, I read the Easter Party, which I really liked. That was much more one of her much later books, and it's sort of just a family saga, I guess. Um, one of really unusual book that I liked, but I don't think most people, I don't think it's rated by those who. I've read everything by her. Um, it was Grand Canyon, oh. which is very strange in that it's sort of this um, alternative history where Germany or Nazi Germany had invaded England and so that lots of people had moved to America. So obviously it's set on the or it's set on the side of the Grand Canyon in a hotel. Oh. Um, the first half is them all being very anxious there, and the second half is them. Or at the end of that first half, they flee into the Grand Canyon to get away from the bombing. Um, and it's just sort of thrown away as a like throwaway line. And this is a spoiler, but I think it's worth mentioning. Because <laughs> it's, what, it, it's what makes the book so interesting. It's, it's, it just says, what none of them realised is that they had died back when the hotel was bombed. And they were all, oh. you know, it's like, oh gosh. <laughs> so it's just, in terms of prose, it's not particularly experimental. And I don't think it's as powerful as these books, but it's so unexpected for her to be doing some sort of like dystopian alternative history, I don't know, supernatural um, novels. So saying, yeah, she... Yeah, it was very surprisingly varied, considering, as you said at the beginning, she's mostly known for being Virginia Woolf's lover and the model for Orlando and yeah. and Aura Gardener. Yeah. Um, and I think while she's not a, one of the great pro stylists in the way that Virginia Woolf was, I think she's a really underrated novelist. A lot of her novels are just extremely good and thought-provoking, and in the case of Grand Canyon, quite unusual and you know, really, really trying something. Yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah, so I'd like, I've got, I think Dragon in Shallow Waters is the only one I've got left I've not read, or maybe Heritage as well. But, um, but yeah, she, I'd be intrigued. I want to go away and read more by her now. Right, so do I. I want to reread The Air, actually. I'm going home this weekend, so I I will go and pick that up, I think. And we have come, I think, to the Teal Books decision moment of between these two excellent books. Which would you choose? I think I would have to go with The Air. And for why? Because I just think it's got such a lovely message and I find it such a hopeful book. And also the prose is beautiful and the description of the house and the way that she just kind of brings... I just had such a vivid image of the beautiful, of the light playing against the wood and just I can still see it in my head now. You know when you can just perfectly imagine something? It's just... I mean, I know actually you're not very good at picturing things, are you? I'm not. Um, (laughs) But um, it's... 
but it just for me I was there I was there I could smell the flowers I could I could hear the creaking of the floorboards it was just the most wonderful book and I, I love books about people who sort of underdogs who, who get to show their true colours and get given a chance it just melts my heart um, and I'm also going to pick the air it is, it's tough because I do love them both um, yes. but I think it is because um, I'm any book that centres around a house is already warm me over quite a lot and I think it is just so perfectly paced and I mean, to to make it a novella rather than novel, I think was a great decision. I think it mm. works really well. Um, yeah, a really lovely book. And indeed, as I was saying to you just before we started recording, one of the books that, despite my massive curls, I still have two copies of because I can't <laughs> bear to part with either of them. They're both beautiful. <laughs> well, I don't blame you for that. Great. <laughs> um, okay, so um, we'd love to know what you would pick, dear yes. listener, um, in, in both categories. Um, and in the next episode, having said that we... Don't read a modern fiction very much. We're going super modern. Oh, yeah. Um, with two novels by Elizabeth Strout, her most recent two novels called My Name is Lucy Barton and Anything is Possible. Is that right? Yes. Everything is Possible? Yeah, Anything, Anything is Possible. Yeah. Which I believe you've read both of those, haven't you? I have, actually, yes. yes. And I have read nothing by her at all, so I'm borrowing them from a friend. Um, but yeah, we get 2016 and 2017, I think they were published, so frighteningly right. modern. We are actually got our fingers on the pulse for a change. We are cutting edge. Yeah. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I'm sure we'll find something for the first half that, you know, proves that that's not true. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, speak to you all next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.